This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919-1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. Listen and follow the Left Wing Rugby podcast with me, Will Slattery and Luke Fitzgerald. As far as I can see, I always want to get in the Irish team. And that should be every young player's dream and ambition in this country. And if you're playing in a place where you're not going to get the opportunities in the big games, that they're the ones that get you picked. They are the ones, the Champions Cup games are the ones that get you picked. You need to be playing in a team and starting in a team for those games. It's as simple as that if you want to play in the Irish team. Every week on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Today on the Indo-Daily, why fast fashion is going out of style. It might be part and parcel of our consumer's psyche that we love a good bargain, but just how often do we question how a particular garment, that high street dress or online order from China, can be purchased and worn so cheaply? Well, new proposals from the European Union hopes to make each one of us take a far more conscious and sustainable approach to how we shop and why we're so happy to just purchase at the press of a button. The EU says it will clamp down on greenwashing, companies misleading consumers with false ethical claims about their products and that manufacturers will have to guarantee durable and eco-friendly clothes. The EU wants to crack down on fast fashion, but in a practical way that puts an emphasis back on the manufacturer rather than the consumer, but allowing us to play our part as well. Experts say that these new measures and teaching people how to recycle and repair clothing could take the fashion industry's life cycle from linear to circular. So the idea is to make clothing easier to repair, to make other items like smartphones and furniture longer lasting too. That's why today on the Indo Daily, we want to look at the fallout of fast fashion, examine what it is and look at how it is ravaging communities and the environment globally. I'm Siobhan McGuire and joining me today is Irish independent columnist and green entrepreneur Anne-Marie Tomczak. Anne-Marie Tomczak, can you explain to me first of all exactly what fast fashion is? Well Siobhan, um, as the, the words indicate fast fashion, it's basically a way to describe how clothing is made, how quickly it is produced. It's, you know, this idea of producing clothes from from the catwalk, the, design, the designs you might see on the runway and how fast they actually end up getting made and being rolled out into the shops or the retailers that we that we see or online uh, websites. And um, to understand fast fashion, um, I think you have to kind of go back in time, not just uh, the last 20 or 30 years, but actually, I think you need to go back further than that to the Industrial Revolution. Because when you think about it, fashion, uh, I think, has been influenced by two big things uh, over the last 200 years. Um, machines, and I mean sewing machines, the Industrial Revolution transformed how clothes were made. So it meant that people were no longer hand uh, producing clothing and that uh, clothes could be made quick, more quickly and more cheaply. But then if you fast forward into the 1900s and into the 
1970s onwards when the world was becoming more globalised. Uh, technology and globalisation has actually played a really big role in the kind of accelerated um, pace of both production and consumption that we're seeing. And you can even kind of go back the last 15, 20 years. That's when fast fashion really became a thing. You know, it was the 1990s and the 2000s when the high street transformed and we saw retailers like the likes of Topshop, Miss Selfridge, um, you know, Zara, H&M, those kinds of retailers uh, taking over the high street. And also the online shopping boom um, really uh, took hold then as well with the dot-com uh, era. The future of cyber shopping is in no doubt. The message is that it's going to hit local businesses as well as the big players and they'll have to be... So I'm going, I've kind of taken a long time to explain it, but I suppose machinery and then industrialism and then technology have actually played a role in this acceleration that we're seeing now. But it's a relatively new phenomenon if you think about the kind of pace that we're seeing at the moment. Absolutely, Anne-Marie. I mean, I would have, I think back on, on uh, I would have grown up in the Midlands in the 1980s and it was hand-me-downs. That, that was what everyone wore, whatever the bigger sister or the older brother had, you wore. And there wasn't that kind of sense of just buying in new stuff all the time. And then I think you've hit the nail on the head, like in the 1990s, we suddenly had this burst of uh, fast fashion shops, even referring to the likes of Grafton Street or O'Connell Street in Ireland as, as, a high, as a high street like we would in the UK. Several British-based chains have moved into one of Ireland's best-known shopping streets. And while Grafton Street shoppers have welcomed the stores such as Next, Principles and Marks and Spencers, they are biting into the Irish. I mean, it really did kind of become a, a mass consumption, didn't it? Yeah, and it? I think you can kind of, you can um, correlate some of that to our economic circumstances. If you think about it, the, the Celtic Tiger um, really started to roar at the end of the 1990s, you think around 1997 onwards, and that was also coinciding with this technological boom uh, that we were experiencing and the building boom. And so our economy was going through this um, accelerated transformation and socially and culturally and economically, we were experiencing a lot of change. We were becoming a much more globalised country. And I, like you, grew up in um, rural Ireland, definitely was borrowing a lot of my, clo my clothes from my cousins or uh, I didn't have old, uh, an older sibling, but our cousins would be the ones that we would have got clothes from. And, but, I, but I have to admit, I was still susceptible to the cult of new, even from a really young age. Uh, it's interesting how there was still this kind of perception issue around secondhand clothes. And I think what's really interesting now is that that perception issue is changing again. We're going through this new phase now where secondhand doesn't have the same necessarily negative connotations that it has historically had for us. Because we've always wanted something new because it showed this idea of social mobility or, or you know, uh, spending power. And now, uh, if you're a more considered consumer, uh, there are different there are different sets of values that are kind of filtering in. I think in terms of uh, the people who have the uh, economic spend, now, that's not you know necessarily applicable to everybody. But I think that there are shifts happening in in our uh, consumption now 
that are really interesting and worth teasing out. That's it. I mean, it's the uh, affordability factor of fast fashion that suddenly kind of opened it up for pretty much, you know, well, not all of us, but many of us, you know, there was that opportunity. Um, I guess why uh, there are shops that are so popular, like the pre-marks, the pennies of this world, um, where you can go in, you can treat yourself to a fashion item for five euros or 10 euros. And, and even the you know, the pennies hon has kind of entered the Irish lexicon <laughs> because um, it's just it's become just part and parcel of what, what we can do now, even on a very small budget. So I think you're hitting on a few really interesting things there. Um, there's this topic about affordability and the democratization of fashion. And it's it's a bit of a narrative that's that the fashion, the fast fashion brands love to peddle about where, you know, they they say that they're actually including people and making the trends accessible by offering them at a budget or at a price point that someone on any budget can afford. And on the face of that, that seems very um, well-meaning and even altruistic. But actually, once you scrutinize it, you realize very quickly that it's absolute nonsense because it's not actually including people. If anything, it's exploiting people. And it's not necessarily the, the consumer that's being exploited, but there's a person on the other end. So what what we think about when we think about buying a piece of clothing is that point of sale and then us with the item of clothing beyond point of sale. But what about the story about that piece of clothing before the point of sale? Uh, you know, the person who actually made the piece of clothing on the other side of the world, who, who it's likely didn't receive the living wage or the textiles for the fabric uh, that uh, was used for the piece of clothing, which is likely made from polyester, which is, you know, one of the most um, ubiquitous or most common uh, fibres in the world. And it's a derivative of petroleum. So it's extractive from, you know, an ecological or an environmental uh, point of view. It's effectively uh, fossil fuels, a manifestation of fossil fuels. And it's also potentially exploitative to people and the planet. So this idea of inclusion and affordability, I feel, is this pseudo narrative that's being uh, built up by fast fashion brands, which are effectively capitalist entities um, that ha- carry a whole load of different problems. Yeah, they, you're, you're dead right, Anne-Marie. Uh, there's a massive human and environmental cost um, as a result of fast fashion, how it works, how how any anything is manufactured under that particular guise. Um, Rana Plaza uh, springs to mind that, that terrible uh, disaster in India in 2007. Bulldozers, diggers and scores of rescue teams have been searching the wreckage of the Rana Plaza factory for over two weeks now. On Friday morning, officials confirmed that more than 1,000 bodies have now been found and the recovery operation is entering its final stages. The majority of the victims were female garment workers who were identified by mobile phones in their pockets or staff passes. The Rana Plaza uh, fire that happened in Bangladesh, I think it was in 2013, but I'm open to correction on that. Um, I, I, I mean, I think that that was a bit of a turning point for the fashion industry. So just for context, the Rana Plaza was a, a terrible incident uh, that happened at a, a garment uh, making uh, factory where there were a lot of really well-known uh, fashion brands who had suppliers in this big factory building. I won't name names, but you, you will know most of them from the high street. And effectively, a terrible um, disaster happened within the building where uh, many, many people died. 
And uh, so there was a, a big fallout and an inquiry about the kind of conditions that people were working in. And I think the sad reality is that Rana Plaza was a disaster just waiting to happen. And there were, you know, there are all sorts of um, uh, other factories around the world where there are they're at a tipping point where there is a disaster just waiting to happen. And it shouldn't take the loss of so many lives in order for the fashion industry uh, to wake up to you know, realise that safety regulations or better working conditions need to be in place. But what did happen from the Rana Plaza uh, disaster was that um, the Bangladesh Accord was signed by a number of uh, different fashion brands. And so that meant that they signed up and made a pledge to uh, you know, doing business in a certain way. This uh, retailing latest, the retailing giants, including H&M, Hennessy, Moritz, Zara, Primark and Tesco, they have all agreed to carry out inspections of factories in Bangladesh to try to, of course, improve safety. 70 Western retailers, mostly European, will provide details of factories they're sourcing from and pay for upgrades or repairs to make them safer. It follows, of course, the collapse of that factory in Bangladesh in April that killed... Uh, uh, and so it did lead to, to some some change. But I think what it highlighted is that it's just the tip of the iceberg. I think that there are a whole other range of problems that exist within the fashion industry that are not known to us. And that is because of the lack of transparency that exists within the supply chain. Because if you're working at such a scale, sometimes you're, you know, if you're working, if you're operating in a business that is at such a scale, you let you suddenly lose grip or oversight over all of the different suppliers that you have. And so how do you begin to even police how business is done on the other side of the world? You know, you can kind of have a code of conduct and best practice and all of that, but you would need to be actively monitoring um, uh, the, the work practices. And I think that that's where things get slip because there isn't anything legally binding or regulatory that's holding up uh, organisations to certain standards. Uh, so there's there's definitely a conversation to be had about that. There was something else you said though about um, affordability and this idea of um, the this kind of type of overconsumption becoming uh, too easy uh, for the consumer, and that we've started to develop a, a throwaway culture. And I just wanted to pick up on that because I think that we as consumers, yes, we, we're susceptible uh, to social media or advertising or even like more money to spend in our pockets and what we see as being, you know, um, a representation of uh, how well we're doing in the world. Sometimes we exhibit that through the clothes that we wear. Um, but really, I think there's a question to be asked about the fashion industry's role in feeding this uh, beast, right? In actually propping up a system of overproduction, which then actively encourages overconsumption. And that's really the key question here. And this is what, you know, I think needs to be addressed. There's a conversation happening in the fashion industry right now around degrowth, for example. And it's about um, looking at overproduction and looking at the, the production of product and actually reducing the amount of product made. Uh, without necessarily compromising on the profit margins or the bottom line. And if you think about the amount of clothes that are like overproduced and then wasted, whether it's because consumers are buying the clothes because they're super cheap, they have to be listed at bargain basement prices, and then they buy them and they have them for a, a short period of time. They wear them maybe once or twice because they don't want to be photographed on social media. 
you know, outfit repeating, as it's called now, which is, just seems absolutely ridiculous. That's interesting, Anne-Marie, because as you were you were speaking there, what sprung to mind for me was, um, and I, I think it was around the, the COP26, there was this incredible image of a desert. I think it was in, was it in Chile or somewhere? I might yes, have to yes. Google it. And it was just all the clothing. Um, do, do, do you recall that um, image? Yes, I've seen the images and I think, you know, I've actually seen similar images in Ghana as well. And um, they're really, it's really frightening, actually, when you see these land masses, which just have, you know, acre upon acre of uh, uh, land covered by clothing. And um, to give people context, like we buy clothes, right? And we think, right, we'll wear it a few times and then we might sell it on Depop and then, you know, uh, justify buying something else or drop them off to the charity shop or the clothes bank. And then that makes us feel a bit better. But what we don't realise is that the idea of recycling clothes or or donating them to a charity shop, it, they, they don't often end up being sold uh, by the charity shop. Sometimes these clothes end up in landfill which is what we're talking about with these um, big sites in places like Ghana or Chile, or they end up being incinerated. So our overconsumption then leads to actually polluting the environment of another place. Uh, And if you think about, you know, the composition of some of these clothes, the particularly cheap synthetic ones, when you incinerate that, uh, if it's a derivative of petroleum, if it's a derivative of oil, what is going into the atmosphere? You know, it's actually kind of frightening. And, you know, the idea of recycling should actually be a last resort. We need to think about how much we're consuming. And the, re- the research shows that over the last 15 years, we have been buying way more clothes. But in tandem with that, we've been wearing those clothes less. So we're getting more, but we're using them less. And then we're throwing them away. And what does that say about, you know, our attitude to clothes and how we see them? We don't necessarily value them as something that, you know, someone took time and care and love to make or that it's a beautiful design that we are, you know, when you think about the great things about the fashion industry, it's about quality, it's something that you're going to truly love and feel amazing wearing, something that might be a representation or an extension of yourself, you know, uh, something that makes you feel like you belong in the world. The clothes that you put on you can really shape who you are and they have a power to do that. When you look at fast fashion, it actually taps into some of the really um, more performative and superficial parts of the human psyche, which is just about, you know, being photographed in social media, looking good in a filtered picture uh, to get some likes, you know, which is uh, fundamentally meaningless when you look at the other side of that, of how, how much it's destroying the planet and the people who might have been um, exploited in the process of production, producing um, in the process of producing those clothes, and I, I actually think a lot of people don't understand that, and I don't mean that in a patronising way at all. I think that there is a, a climate literacy gap there, and most people who buy um, clothes or fast fast fashion mean well. You know, they may love being part of the latest trends but might not be thinking of the back end of what's going on within that supply chain. And definitely, uh, I think, Anne-Marie, in the last uh, 12 months, in 2021, there was a a bigger conversation underway in relation to the likes of uh, the slow fashion movement and um, shopping with a conscience. And when you uh, referred to it being the responsibility of the industry earlier, 
it kind of struck me that, you know, we're fed an awful lot of information from from different clothing companies who who might very well mean well by rolling out kind of fair trade labels and all that kind of thing with sustainable cotton, whatever you're having yourself. Um, but in terms of, of us talking about this now and, and getting a little bit more clued up and exactly what we're doing um, to the environment and how damaging it is to the, the people who are actually making uh, these clothes in the first instance, are we showing any signs of slowing down when it comes to fast fashion? You know, I really wish that I could answer that question honestly by saying yes. But I think that when you look at the numbers and the quarterly earnings figures for a lot of the big fast fashion brands, I read them with so much dismay in my heart because I see so many great voices in the conscious consumption space or uh, sustainable fashion pioneers. And I see what they're doing and think there's oh, there's great things going on. There's so many young uh, climate activists now. We can see all the Gen Z young people are getting on board and they're really genuinely uh, active about the environment and they're shopping pre-loved and they want to see a change. But then that flies totally in the face of what the, the numbers show us. And, you know, I always think data is a, it reveals itself. You know, uh, when you start looking at the hard, cold numbers, that's when you see um, a truer version of reality. Now, yeah, you can skew data in different ways, but let's just take the earnings. It's the the brands, the fast fashion brands are the ones that are still um, just uh, like a tidal wave uh, and they're still growing. So there's these two things going on at the same time where you've got the rise of more conscious consumers and people are demanding to understand a little bit more about their fashion habits. I definitely know myself, like there are so many things in my wardrobe that I own that I may have bought 10 years ago and or even 20 years ago. I do still have things in my wardrobe from that period of time, but they're from fast fashion. You know, we all have fast fashion or we've bought it over the years. I'm not going to sit here and be sanctimonious and pretend that I don't own one item of fast fashion because the world isn't structured like that. It's like saying I don't have any fossil fuels in my life. That's just not possible because the entire world is structured around fossil fuels. Having said that, we can continue to try to learn and to grow and to make um, more informed choices so that we try to separate ourselves from fossil fuels, fashion being one of those things, you know, and we try to like um, understand a bit more about the brands. Now, it's not all on the consumer either. I know when you were describing fair trade, organic, you know, uh, vegan, there are all these words used to bamboozle people and I think it's actually really hard to sometimes understand what exactly does this mean yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean uh, so it, it, isn't, it shouldn't just be um, put on the shoulders of the consumer and my thanks to Anne-Marie Tomchak there I'm Siobhan Maguire and today's episode was produced by Tabitha Monaghan recorded by Gavin Hennessy with sound design by John Smith Clips from Orti Archives with new trends in spending and cyber shopping malls, BBC News, and France 24. You can follow the Indo Daily wherever you get your podcasts.